in 2 Samuel chapter number 11. 2 Samuel chapter number 11 and Psalm 51. 2 Samuel chapter 11 and Psalm 51. As you find your place there to 2 Samuel 11 and to Psalm 51. If I wanted you to guess a person, like charades or name that person or something like that, based off just some adjectives, some things about their life, I wonder who you would think about when I said this. If I told you this morning I want you to think of somebody that um, is a liar, I want you to think about somebody that's not honest, somebody that's selfish and has very much the desire to have above someone else's desire to have. In fact, somebody to the point that they had more than enough, but they took away from somebody that didn't have much at all just because they wanted what they had. If I also said this person was an adulterer, if I said this person was a murderer, if I said this person doesn't mind deceiving people, I wonder who you would think about in Scripture. Sometimes we would think of people, maybe, well, bad people, right? That doesn't sound like any wonderful list of godly characteristics you want on your resume, right? You say, well, maybe that would be like a Judas or... Or maybe it talks about, Paul says, Demas, someone like that that left. You say, well, maybe I could stretch a little bit. You know, Peter wasn't always a great guy. Maybe somebody like him or, or maybe Lot. You know, Lot would be a great person you could pick there. But can I tell you, all those things I just described are going to be about the person that we're going to look at today that's known as the man after God's own heart. Everything I just described to you was David. And what's interesting about everything I just described to you, David did, and it encapsulated his life in one moment that led to not just sin, but a lifestyle of sin that led for probably over a year. And we're going to see something here in just a moment in Second Samuel chapter number 11. But I love reading the book of Psalms. I don't know if you enjoy reading Psalms, but I really like Psalms whenever I know where they're put in history. Where do they go in the account of Scripture? When you read the book of Psalms, you don't necessarily... Start in Psalm 1, and by the time you get to Psalm 150, there's a chronological progression there. There's not. In fact, when you read Psalm 90, it's a psalm of Moses. Many people believe it's the psalm that he wrote as they were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. But we're going to read Psalm 51, and Psalm 51 is what I want us to look at today. And just been thinking and praying and a lot of things going on. Uh, many of you may have heard uh, either through Facebook or our Facebook page, but also um, through Wednesday night, if you're in the service, that uh, many of you that know and love Miss Irma Murch, that's been a part of our church for many years. Miss Irma has been struggling and battling cancer in her lungs, and it's over the last six to eight months has now went to her brain, and and they're at the point now where they've called in hospice and getting to see her the other day and talking with the the nurses and different people. They think she probably has less than two weeks to live. And when you think about these things, and we're surrounded by death. I mean, we have death and we have illnesses. We have things that happen all around us. And I want to tell you that off the, off the bat because I want you to do something. I want you to pray for Miss Irma. And as I mentioned on Wednesday night, I want you to pray for her. I want you to pray for her two daughters, Sonia and uh, Donna, and then also pray for her son, Dale. But also, Sonia and Donna and Dale also just found out that their father um, has also just been diagnosed with lung cancer. So it's got a lot going on right now in their lives. I mean, they're all you know, pretty much my age or a little bit older. They got a lot going on. And so I'm praying for them. I'm praying for Miss Irma. I'm praying that, that God will give her a comfortable, easy death, but I'm also praying that God will give her a missionary death, meaning that through her 
going home to be with the Lord, which for a believer is glorious, that God may use that in the lives of her children, maybe in the lives of people around her that would come to Christ or go closer to Christ. By the way, I don't think of a more glorious death than a missionary death to be able to say God allowed your death and your life to bring someone else to Christ. And in studying that and thinking about and just meditating on that and studying this passage, I wasn't really intending to go to Psalm because I'm, I'm really wanting to get to the book of Acts because we're past the, uh, Resurrection Sunday and wanting to get there. But the Lord kept bringing this back to my mind. And in studying and thinking about it, I, I thought about this. And, and I would dare say you're here today with this mentality. I want to be right with God right now. Ask yourself the question, do you want to be right with God right now? In this very moment, if you ask people over the grand scheme of their life, do you want to be right with God? A lot of them say, yeah, before I die, I like to be right with God. Well, the honest truth is we have no idea when it's going to be time for us to be absent from this body and be standing before the Lord. And as a believer, and I tell you, as an unbeliever, you should have a great desire to be right with God in the area of salvation, that the Lord is your Savior and your faith and trust is in Him. But as a believer, as a child of God, Ask yourself, are you right with God right now? Right now. And if you're not right with God in this moment, what are you wanting to do about it? Do you want anything to change? Or do you just want to enjoy the service? Let's get a little bit happier note, Phil. And let's go out here and get back to life. Because that's what happens a lot in churches all across our country and all around the world. They want to enjoy church. We want to go home. And we want to get back to life. But the truth is, David was somebody known as a man after God's own heart, even after these horrible things that we've studied, and we'll look at here in a little bit, that he did. But this, Psalm 51, and as I mentioned earlier, if you like to read different parts of the Psalms and know where they're meant, Psalm 51 is where David gets right with God. Psalm 51 is the Psalm where David doesn't just tell God, I'm sorry for what I did. This is the Psalm where it is in full detail where his forgiveness and his desire for restoration, his desire to be renewed, and his desire to have fellowship again with God. This is where David gets right with God. And I think it's important, if God planned it in a psalm that we wouldn't think much of, but if God had this in the man that's after God's own heart, I believe he can apply it to your life and in my life today, about being right with God and being right with him now. I'm not going to read the whole psalm to start with, but I'd like for us to look at Psalm 51, beginning in verse Number one, so remember the idea, David is getting right with God. Psalm 51, verse 1. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned. And none this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Verse 6. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear the joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Father, I pray as we come to you, to you this morning and as we look at this passage, Lord, I think we all want to have more joy in our life. 
Lord, I think we all desire to have happiness in our life. Lord, we all desire, I, I would hope, to want to worship you today. But Lord, all that's in vain if we're not right with you. And Lord, I pray as we just gather around your word for the next few moments that you would, and I beg you, Lord, that you would not let Satan steal that good seed out of, of your word out of the minds and hearts of the people that are sitting here today, not out of my mind and heart as well. Lord, I pray you take from me the words you'd have me not to say, but Lord, give me exactly what you desire for us to hear this morning. And Lord, before I ask you to use me, Lord, I pray you make me usable. Lord, may the inside of the cup be just as clean as the outside. Forgive me where I fail you. And Lord, I pray that you might just open our eyes, that we might behold wondrous things out of that law. Lord, I thank you so much for everybody that's here today. It's not an accident. This is our appointment with you. And Lord, when we leave this place, may we truly say, not only was it good to be in the house of God, but may we walk out and say to the best of our ability, through the grace and mercy and loving kindness of Almighty God, that we're right with my soul and the Savior. Be with us, I ask please, in Jesus' name. Amen. Last Sunday, we focused on John chapter number 11. It's the chapter that actually took Sunday morning and Sunday night. And uh, on, it was that long of a message, and we probably could have made it a series, but I didn't want to do that to you. But John chapter 11, and we looked at the idea of, of how we as believers can not only be discouraged, but how we can suffer, but not only be discouraged and suffer, but how do we do that well? How do we go through that and how our suffering and discouragement sometimes can be and to understand for the glory of God? And today, as we focus on Psalm 51, I want us to look at something. I want to ask you to raise your hand. Don't do that. But I wonder if there's anybody in this room that is like me that has a lot of regret in your life. You wish you could have a do-over in some situations. But you know, every now and then in life, we don't just have a little bit of regret. You ever sometimes feel in life you're just overwhelmed with regret? You really start to think about your shortcomings. You start to think about your faults. It's not how you failed God and how you failed people and how you sinned and how you did what was right in your own eyes. And you really get overwhelmed. And Psalm 51 really shows us how we can be overwhelmed with regret and do it right and do it well. And I can I tell you, what makes a person a Christian is not that he or she doesn't get discouraged or he or she doesn't sin or not even that he or she doesn't feel miserable about their sin. But what makes a Christian a true follower of Christ is the connection that he or she has with the Lord Jesus Christ that shapes our thinking and our emotions about what it means to be discouraged about our sin and regret and our guilt. See, the book of Psalms is known as the hymn book of the Hebrews. And in fact, as we're going to study soon in the book of Acts, the early church, that was their hymn book. They, they, sung, they sang the prayers. They sang all these different things that they did, these hymns and these songs that come out of the book of Psalms. And they were designed by God to awaken and shapen, if you will, the thoughts and feelings of Christ's disciples. And we learn from Psalms how to think and feel in times of discouragement. I tell you, if you're discouraged here today, one of the best books you can pick up is not the book on five ways not to be discouraged. The best thing you can do is pick up the book of Psalms. Psalms will be, to be about good, godly people that, you know what, failed and fell flat on their face and were discouraged about sin either brought in their life or, let's be honest, some of them are discouraged about things happening to them that they had no problem, no sin brought it. You read some of the Psalms. I love reading about David, how David is in a cave fleeing from Saul. David hasn't done anything wrong. And David is the man anointed to be the next king, but he wasn't anointed to be the next king then. He had to wait. He had to have moments when he was hiding in a cave. 
And some of these psalms are so great when you think about where David was or, or where Solomon was or where Moses was and these different things. When you think about these, these psalms, if you will, they're great for discouragement. They're great for regret. And they tell us how to do it and handle it well. How to handle it well. And I want us to see as we were about to get into the main part of Psalm 51. But before we get into Psalm 51, I feel like it's important for us to see this. I think before you get to Psalm 51, you've got to see David's downward spiral into sin. If you have your place there, hold it there, if you would, and flip back, if you would, to first, excuse me, 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter number 11. I'm not going to read the whole account here of David and Bathsheba. But when you read this passage of Scripture, and we all of us know, I mean, it's pretty obvious. I mean, we know David and Bathsheba. They say the average church, if you ask them, what do you know about David? You know what they normally say. We know about David and Goliath, and we know about David and Bathsheba. So when you think about David, there's normally the top two things, sometimes the only things that people know about David. But when you read this passage, don't think to yourself what the TV or the movies or other things will put. You ain't got a 20-year-old guy here. You ain't got an older teenager. You ain't got a man in his 20s and 30s here. By this point in David's life, he's mature. He's in his 50s or 60s when this happens. So don't see a young, robust, hair-flowing, beautiful-looking David. You need to think about a David that's set in his years, set in his ways. He knows what's right and what's wrong. He is mature spiritually. He is mature spiritually. Psalm, excuse me, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse number 1, it says, And it came to pass after the year was expired, at a time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbath. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. And it came to pass in the evening tide that David arose from his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. Verse 3, And David sent and inquired after the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her. She came into him, and he lay with her. For she was purified from her uncleanness, and she returned unto her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, and said, I am with child. There's a lot of this downward spiral here, and we're not going to take the whole service to look at David. But i tell you some words I have underlined in my Bible in verse number 1, the part where it says, kings go forth to war. The time when kings go forth to war. I've also underlined the end of my Bible in verse number 1, but David tarried still at Jerusalem. By the way, you don't have David's sin with Bathsheba if David would have been in the right place to begin with. By the way, part of being right with God is being in the right place. It's being in the right place. It's being geographically where you're supposed to be too. It's being in the right place. David went off into battle. David wouldn't have been looking and seeing Bathsheba. And there's a lot of debate about how that whole story goes, and we're not going to get into all that. But can I tell you this? David saw, David thought, David lingered, David meditated, David justified, and then David sent for her. That wasn't just, oh, one time, sorry, let's go. David looked and pondered for a long time. That's why Psalm 1 is so important. Blessed man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. May I tell you today that Lot pitched his tent towards Sodom, but by the time the angels came to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, he was sitting in the seat of position and authority. He was the greeter. You guys walk through these doors. There's probably people, Tim, and other people back there greeting people. How would you like to be walking into the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah that God wants to scorch off the face of the earth, and there's a lot greeting everybody? How you doing? Come on in. Good to see you. That's how far Lot fell. And can I tell you, 
that's the road that David started to go down. And as you see this passage, and as we understand this, is that what happened with Bathsheba is well known, and what he tried to cover his sin by bringing in her husband, Uriah. Remember, he calls, says, Joab, send Uriah back. Send Uriah back. I just found out Bathsheba's with child. I can't, everyone's going to know it's me. We've got to wrap this thing. We, we've really got to work this thing out. And so he says, bring Uriah back. And he says, Uriah, I'm glad you're here. You're a very worthy servant. You're very worthy. You know, you've done so good. So I'm going to give you a little break. I want you to go home and be with your wife, be with your family, be there. And he thought, well, obviously, if I can do that, then everyone's going to think, oh, the child's not mine. It's Uriah. Everything's under the rug. Boy, don't you love the integrity of Uriah? By the way, you say, Phil, I don't like the integrity of Uriah because Uriah died. I'd rather have the integrity of Uriah and possibly lay down my life than have the lack of integrity and spirituality of David and live and deceive people in sin. And you know what? Whenever David, and this is for free, at the end of his life, David lists about 30 to 40 who he calls mighty men. Ones that he thanks God for for eternity when you read the end of the life of David. You want to know one of the mighty men is? Uriah the Hittite. He even, in his deception, in having him killed, says there's somebody that I couldn't have done what I'd done without him, without his integrity. And so we see that after Uriah will not go, go back and, and go home and be with his wife, that David says, okay, well, now I've got to figure out a way to kill him. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to send him. And by the way, if you ever really think about David and you really get this, you ever get some people just really disgust you sometimes. I mean, you just get disgusted by it. David sent the murder note of Uriah by the hand of Uriah. You ever thought about that? David actually handed Uriah the very note that said this, Joab, when you get to the hottest part of the battle, retreat back, let Uriah be killed. And he gave that to Uriah to hand to him. Anybody get a little curious about things? You know, you like to look over people's shoulders when people are writing and doing different things. You ever wonder about that? Imagine Uriah going back to Joab. I mean, this is an intense battle. I wonder what David's big plan is. I wonder what he wants. I know Uriah didn't read that note. You know why? Any human being. Can you imagine that? Maybe he did read it, and he's got more integrity than I can ever imagine. But he took his own death notice by his own hand. As we know, Uriah was killed. Uriah was killed, and it goes on in Scripture here in 2 Samuel to say that uh, come to find out that Bathsheba was expecting. Of course, everybody sends back word that Uriah has been killed. So everyone comes, and they cry, and they mourn for the widow Bathsheba. And so they're mourning for her, and here comes David. Man, this is working out pretty good for me. This is working out pretty good. So now she's a widow. Everybody's crying. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make it all go away. You know what I'll do? I'll take poor little Bathsheba, this widow that's expecting a child, I'll take her in and make her my wife, and she'll be part of my She'll be a queen. She'll be, she'll be one of mine. And I'll let everybody think, look at the big, bad, godly, strong David. Step in here. It's not really the image we paint a lot of David, is it? That doesn't sound like a man after God's own heart. Sounds like somebody, you, you really just say, give me five minutes in an alley with him, is what you, what you think about it when you hear that. By the way, there's somebody later in Scripture named Ahithophel, who's the uncle of Bathsheba. Be careful where your sin leads you. Ahithophel, from the time that David sinned with Bathsheba to the end of Ahithophel's life, thought to ruin David's life. He wasn't successful, but he sure did make him miserable for a long time. But we see here he covers up the sin. He takes her in, and look what I've done here. And you say, well, 
Brother Phil, if I read this correctly, 2 Samuel 11, and it comes right before 2 Samuel 12. So that means he got right with God. Well, if you look at the last verse of 2 Samuel 11, verse number um, 26. 2 Samuel eleven twenty six says, And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. In verse 27, And when the morning was past, David sent and fetched her to his house, and she became his wife and bare him a son. But look at the next part. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. I underline that last part, that last sentence in that verse. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Can I tell you... Um, there's a lot of underrated things in, in uh, life. People say, well, how, how's your day going? Well, my day's going okay. Man, you, everything's been going great. Someone asks you how your ball team's doing. Your ball team's winning, doing great. Oh, they're doing good. It's just an understatement. They're underrated. You're really, they've really done really well. You just try to play things down. But can I tell you the statement here, it says, but the thing that David hath done displeased the Lord is a very underrated sentence in the Bible. Because we just read that and think nothing of it. We think, oh, what David did, it just, just pleased the Lord. Well, what God does in his displeasure is probably about a year to 18 months go by because the baby's born. And God sends a prophet. He sends a prophet in chapter number 12, verse number 1, and the Lord sent Nathan unto David. And it goes on to talk about that David gives, gets a parable, if you will, and and so God sends Nathan with his parable and tells him about this man that has all kinds of sheep and herds and flocks and everything. But there's one family that, that they have this one little ewe lamb and they love it and they take care of it. And, and they even they make it as almost as part of the family. I believe one of the verses goes on to say, and to the man it was like a daughter to him. I mean, they love this one little ewe lamb. It's all they have. But it says that the person that had plenty, the wealthy person, came in because he heard some people were coming. So instead of taking of what he had plenty of, he took from the one man, the one little ewe lamb, and he sacrificed it. And David pronounces his own sentencing. David pronounces his own condemnation, if you will. And David goes, sits up and gets crazy. And he says, they said, man, that guy should repay that man uh, fourfold he should he should do uh, he should keep going he should keep giving fourfold to this thing and, and has no pity on him and he just goes off he gets really angry then you read some wonderful words of scripture in second samuel verse 12 verse number seven and nathan said to david thou art the man you're the guy that's done this you're the man you're the man that's done this he goes on to say in verse number 9, he says, Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord? He says, Why have you despised it? And finally, David, in his conviction that he'd been putting off and putting off and putting off for so long, finally, in verse 13, it says this, And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Can I tell you, when David says, I have sinned against the Lord, that's where you get the beginning of Psalm 51. I have sinned against the Lord is just the beginning of how David pours out his heart in the verses that we read in Psalm 51. But before we dive into that, you say, Brother Phil, I'm here. I've, I've got a lot of sin in my life. In fact, you're, you're preaching to the choir talking about regret and guilt and all those things. I mean, <laughs> thanks. I, this is not making me feel better. Well, here's the wonderful thing. For every sinner, there's a Savior. For every sin, there's grace. There's redemption to be had. There's restoration to be made. 
And if you look in verse number 13 and everything that's happened in David, and if you're kind of like me, you almost just reading his listeners, kind of start getting a little edgy against David a little bit, don't you? How could he do this? But look what Nathan says in the middle of verse 13. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. Now, when you think about everything we've just talked about for the first eight or nine minutes here, everything that we've talked about that he did, astonishing and how gross and how horrible it is that, that David did. And we see whenever David gets right with God, whenever he says, I have sinned against the Lord, Nathan doesn't hesitate and he says this, the Lord's put away thy sin. To me, doesn't it almost sound a little outrageous? I mean, how, how can just like that, after everything that we talked about, after not being where you're supposed to be, after not only being the wrong kind of leader, and not only that, after sinning with Bathsheba and lusting after her and committing adultery with her, and then being a murderer, and then trying to cover things up, and then being prideful, prideful, and then not only that, after for probably 12 to 18 months, making himself look like the good guy, and after all of that, how in the world can God... Tell Nathan to say, I put away your sin. How is that possible? How is that possible? How can God, just like that, forgive that? How can he do that? And if you're us like today, you almost seem almost a little outraged at the behavior of God. How can God, just, just like that, just remove it, forgive it? And I believe the Apostle Paul shares our outrage, but then again, the Apostle Paul explains something that's very difficult for us to understand sometimes. That God can be both righteous and God can also justify the sinful. God can be just, he can be righteous, but God can also justify. God can justify the murderer. God can justify the liar. God can justify the adulterer. God can justify whatever it is. He can justify it. And if you would, I know I told you two places, but I got a few more. Romans chapter 3, if you don't mind. Because when you read that Old Testament story, you look and say, how in the world can Nathan say by the leading of the Lord, how can the Lord put away his sin? How can he put away his adultery? How can he put away his lust? How can he put away all these things? How can he put it away? How can he do that? See, Romans chapter 3, verses 25 and 26, you're probably familiar with Romans chapter 3, verse 23. It says, for all have sinned to come short of the glory of God. But see, Romans chapter 3, verses 25 and 26 are very important for us to understand as believers this side of the cross. Romans 3, 25 and 26 is the gate between the New Testament and how Christ forgives completely in the Old Testament, in particular the book of Psalms. Look in uh, Romans 3, verse number 25. Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remissions of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. You may say, Phil, I don't understand how can everything that happened with David, everything in David's sin, everything we listed, how in the world can, can God just simply say he puts away his sin after he confesses, David confesses? He can say that. He can say it because God can be just and God can justify at the same time. Because what does it say in verse 25? How can David in his sin go away? How can his sin be cast away? 
Because it says he's a propitiation. Jesus Christ is. Can I tell you, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, the word propitiation there means satisfactory payment. It also means appeasement for the wrath of God. That God had to dump and empty his wrath out on someone. So when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he became the propitiation. He became satisfactory payment for the wrath of God. So David doesn't have to pay for his sin. You say, what does it mean? But I don't understand. David got forgiveness of his sin. A lot of Christians think, blame or use the blood of Christ without ever getting forgiveness. David does say, I have sinned, and we'll get into that in just a moment. But when we see here and understand something, God doesn't simply brush David's sin under the rug. God sees from the time of David, and understand this, from the time of David, he sees that his son's going to come, and his son's going to bleed, and his son's going to die. That's why he can put away his sin. God sees all the way back in, in Adam and Eve when they sinned and they got forgiveness for their sin. How can they get forgiveness for messing this whole thing up, Adam and Eve? How can they get forgiveness? Because God in his justness and God in his mercy, God in his righteousness can see where his son's going to come and he's going to become that payment. You might be here and say, God, I don't know how God can forgive me for all the things that I've never done in my life. Hey, I'm a believer. And in my life, I've got to admit, Phil, my life as a believer... <laughs> I'm doing, I didn't say done, I'm doing some pretty wicked things. How in the world can my sins be put away? How is that possible? Through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I tell you something? That even believers in Christ need forgiveness of sin. You say, that doesn't make any sense. Whenever you put your faith and trust in Christ, you ask Christ to what? To forgive you of your sins and to save you, to take, become your Savior. But as a believer, I still sin. And that's why you have 1 John chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. In 1 John chapter 1, verses 7 through 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is speaking to believers at the church of Ephesus. It is not speaking to the lost. As believers, I have to confess my sin. As believers, I have to make sure that my heart is right with God. I have to make sure, and even in my sin, because I don't know about you, and I know I was a young person when I got saved. I understand that. But can I be honest with you? My regret of my sin as a believer weighs more on me than probably it did when I was an unbeliever. Some of you got saved a little bit later in life. You had regret of your sin before you come to Christ. If you're like me, and probably like many other people, you regret your sin more now that you're saved, because why? You're like, oh, why am I doing this? Why do I keep doing this? If they're everything Jesus has done for me, why am I still doing these stupid sins? Why do I keep giving myself to this sin? You get overwhelmed by it. And you get to the point where you almost say, it's no use. And in our lives, we live defeated and we live in sin and we stay in that way. But can I tell you, even as a believer, we need a daily need for forgiveness. You say, oh, brother Phil, I don't know about a daily need of forgiveness. Well, if you read Matthew chapter 6, we talk about the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer. And give us this day our daily bread. We love that part. That means give us what we need for the day. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those that trespass against us. We like to jump to trust, forgive those that trespass against us. Even Jesus in the model prayer said, you know something you probably should pray daily, not just give you my daily bread. But you know what you also need to pray? Forgive me where I mess up. Forgive me for where I mess up. Why? So my fellowship with you will be right. 
Can I, can I just be honest that sometimes with, with people that I'm very close to, if for some reason I act out or say something sharp that I shouldn't say or do something I shouldn't do or maybe not do something I should do, you know what it does to that relationship? It strains it, doesn't it? And you know the only thing that makes it right is not time. We use time as an excuse for confession. Time is not an excuse for confession. Confession is confession. And what we do is when we say, I'm sorry, and we, we kind of make up, so to speak, then what? The fellowship is renewed. Same thing's true with our relationship with God. When you sin, you don't lose your salvation, but you do lose fellowship with God. Can I put it to you like this? What are we here to do today? Glorify God, right? That means we're here to worship God. Can I tell you something? I wonder how many church services, I wonder how many Sabbaths, I wonder how many times David went to the temple between his sin with Bathsheba and before he got right with Nathan and worshipped God. But he did a lot. You know what that means? God didn't hear his worship. God didn't accept it. And I wonder how many Christians today are sitting in churches today and they're worshiping God and God saying, I don't want to hear it. Until you get right with me, you can't worship me rightly. And can I tell you something this morning? I love you being here. I want you here. I know God desires you to be here a lot more and care less what I think about it. But can I tell you, you cannot worship God correctly until you get right with God correctly. You can't do it. You can't serve God in a way that pleases God until you're right with God. I can't stand up here and preach and please God in the way that I preach unless I'm right with him. That's why every now and then, I don't know if you guys notice this or not, I, I try to, before services, I hide a little bit. I hide a little bit. I, I, part of me wants to, you kind of wonder if I'm here or not. You know, you know I, I hide a little bit. You know why? Because I like to take a little time to read the Word again and really just be honest. I want to get on my face to God and say, God, protect me because I hate to walk out in this room and think something, do something, say something, and not do this correctly. There's a big difference between somebody standing and giving the word that's not right with God. And have you ever seen somebody, maybe you've been to a service before, remember in your past or your childhood, you ever just hear someone give the word of God and you know that as best as they could be, they're right with God and they're just trying to please God. Man, you get a lot more out of it. And you know, I wonder how many times David worshipped in that 12 months, 18 months. And David thought, well, I'm in church. I'm probably standing and saying the prayers. I'm probably reading the verses. I'm probably doing all the services and things I'm supposed to do. But he wasn't right with God. I wonder if, if God would have took David's life during that time. Would he still be known as a man after God's own heart? David's not known as a man after God's own heart without Psalm 51. He's not known as that. He's known as a great man that had a great start, but a horrible finish if it's not for Psalm 51. And I want us to see in this passage of Scripture this morning, I want us to see some of David's responses to his sin. I want to see some of David's responses to his sin. And, and, and by the way, Psalm 51 is the way that God's people should think and feel about the horrors of our own sin. Let me, let me put it to you like this. Do you think your sin is really that bad? Your sin. Do you really feel like it's that bad? It's like, eh, it's not as bad as so-and-so. But we see how we should feel. First, I want us to see this about a response. Number one, I see that he turns to God. Back there in Psalm 51, it says this, Have mercy upon me, O God, 
according to thy loving kindness, according to thy multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. He turns to his only hope. He turns to the mercy and the love of God. Three times do you see it in this passage in verse number one. He says, have mercy. He says, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy mercy, he is pleading with God and claiming the promise of God to do what? Have mercy on me. He's pleading with God. And this is what God promised all the way back. In Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, where it says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions of sins, but who will by no means pardon the guilty. And so David knew that there were guilty people that weren't forgiven. But David also understands that you know what, there's a mystery in this thing we call redemption, and he did not want to be counted with the guilty, but he wanted to be forgiven. And can I tell you, Psalm 51 is the way that David lays hold on this mystery that we call grace and mercy. And when we read this, I don't know if you noticed this part, I see personal responsibility in Psalm 51. You look what he says. David's saying, have mercy upon me. He goes on at the end of the verse, it says, blot out my transgression. I have all these underlined in my Bible. Wash me, verse 2, from mine iniquity. Verse 2, cleanse me from my sin. Verse 3, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee and thee only have I sinned. He's saying, it's me and I've got to turn to you because I can't do it. I can't keep living the way that I'm living. I have to have your mercy. I have to have your grace. I need your help. As we see how he turns to God. Have mercy upon me, O God. Not only do I see that he turns to God, but I also see that he prays for not just cleansing, but thorough cleansing. Look, Remember at the um, end of verse number one, what does he say? Blot out my transgressions. You think that's a pretty good statement, right? Blot out my transgressions? David goes, no, no, I don't just blot it out. Look in verse two. Wash me throughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He says in this, he says, I don't want you just to blot out my sins. I want you to wash me. I want you to renew me. I want you to cleanse me from all of my sin. Let me ask you a question today. Do you want God to forgive all your sin or just the sin you feel bad about? You want God to forgive you for having the wrong kind of thoughts, but you don't want God to forgive you yet for being angry and responding to people in an ungodly way. We are all very selective in our forgiveness. God, I want you to forgive me. I want you to forgive me for watching that program and having that issue in my life. But God, over here, I'm still pretty okay with being prideful. Do you want God to cleanse you throughly? Kind of reminds me of another portion of Scripture. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way of everlasting. That's David too. Is in your mind and heart, do you want God to forgive you for where you just maybe say the wrong thing, but maybe that thing and that bitterness in your heart that you've had for years and years and years against that person, against that thing, you don't want God to forgive you of that yet. David said, I'm not just talking about my sin with Bathsheba. I'm not just talking about my sin with Uriah. I'm not just talking about my deception that I've done. I'm not just talking about murder. He says, I want you to cleanse all of me. Kind of reminds me of Peter. You remember Peter when Jesus started washing the disciples' feet? I love Peter. Peter's awesome. Peter, you know, 
He, Jesus starts to wash feet. No, 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 Lord. Don't wash my feet. I'm not worthy for you to wash my feet. And Jesus says, if, you don't, if I don't wash your feet, I ain't got no part with you. Peter flips the switch. Okay, God, don't just wash my feet. Wash my head. Wash all of me. Just all of me. Get, get all of me. Jesus says, not, that's not what it needs to be right now, Peter. But what Peter was finally said, hey, I want all of me to be a part with you. Let me ask you, is there anything in your life you're not willing to be right with God about? What about in your marriage? What about in the way you raise kids? When it comes to your personal devotional life, reading the Bible, what about coming to church, being faithful as he talks about, forsaking not the assembly of God? What about in the way you handle your money? What about in the way you handle your, your illnesses and your sicknesses? What about in the way you handle your temptations? Is there any part of your life that you're not willing to be right with God about? That's a big thing. And he says here, wash me thoroughly, completely. Not just the outside, but the inside where nobody else sees. Where I'm the only one that knows it and you're the only one that knows it. But he goes on to say, and I have two favorite verses in this passage. I love verse 7 and I love verse 10. But the idea of wash, uh, washing and cleansing and being cleansed uh, thoroughly is verse 7. It says this. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Can I tell you what hyssop is? Hyssop was the instrument, or the, the branch, or staff, if you would, that the priest would use whenever somebody lived in a house that had a disease, or a leprosy, or some different things like that, that you would not allow to go in because there was, there was basically a sense of, of uh, being infected, impure, what they would do is whenever that person through God's miraculous healing was healed, they would take hyssop, put it in the blood of a sacrificial lamb. This kind of sounds familiar, don't it? And he would take it and the priest would put it on the doorpost. So everyone that came by that looked at that door and originally thought disease, they thought impurities, they thought unclean because of the blood that was applied by the hyssop. Clean. You may enter. If that doesn't sound like the Lord Jesus Christ, I don't know what does. Because when God looks at me before Christ, all he sees is the wrath of God abiding, impure, sinful. But when Jesus died in that sacrificial lamb, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, that hyssop was used to apply the blood. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. I, I almost hate to jump past the first word of that sentence. Purge me. This means this. A lot of us like to get right with God like this. Okay, God, now this right here, I got a little problem with my anger, so God, I'm going to give you my anger. Okay, God, I got a little issue with my faith. I don't really trust you a lot in my finances, so God, I'm, I'm going to give you my finances. No, no, no. Purge me means this. You come and take out of me and away from me what doesn't need to be there. That's a different story. See, because when I say, hey, God, I'm willing to give this, it puts me all in control. But when I say purge me, that means, God, you come with full rule and reign and remove from me anything that doesn't need to be there. Can you say in totally getting right with God in your life that you'd be willing to say, God, today, purge me? God, if there's things in my life that don't need to be there, I am willing for you not just to see them and forgive them, but to remove them from my life to remove them purge me with hyssop and what and i shall be clean i want to be clean but i don't want to be purged 
I want to lose weight, but I don't want to take the Twinkies out of the cabinet. Right? I don't want to be an alcoholic, but I won't get the booze out of my house. Oh, you're treading lightly, Phil, now. I know that. I won't be a drug addict, but I'm going to keep the dope on the table. Let's just be real. Let's just be real a little bit. We all want God to clean us, but we don't want God to purge us. When Spurgeon says, hey, whatever it is, take out. Hey, even if it hurts. Even if it hurts a little bit. I don't care for Twinkies, so if, if, if it's you know the Twinkie thing, I'm sorry about that, okay? Take my fried chicken, Lord. I can give it away. You can take it. You can take the sweet tea while you're at it and add in a side of grits if you want. I don't care. Take it. If you're visiting with us, I don't like those things, so just in case you're wondering. Help me with this, Lord. God, take my desire for watching Tennessee play football on Saturday if it's going to make me not come to church on Sunday. God, take my desire for watching Tennessee football away if I'm going to come in here with a bad mood all fouled up on Sunday. Now, you can apply your team if you need. Let's just be honest. I think I read in the book of Exodus, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Be careful, because when we do, those things displease the Lord. 2 Samuel eleven twenty seven. God, don't let my desire for hobbies on Saturday keep me out of church on Sunday. Hey, God, don't let how I feel not keep me out of work, but, oh, I don't know if I can make church. Phil, I don't like that. It's okay. You don't have to like me. It's, it's God. Okay, it's God. We can do like David did for 12 to 18 months and justify everything we do, or we can say, God, you're worthy. That's the option. God, you're worthy. It's one or the other. And when I see this, he says, purge me. I want to be thoroughly clean. I want to be thoroughly cleansed. And so David looks helplessly to God for his mercy, that God would forgive him and make him clean. Number three is that he confesses the seriousness of his sin. The seriousness of his sin. How many times have you ever prayed, Lord, forgive me where I did wrong. And that's about as deep as you get. What he's saying, the seriousness of his sin, he's saying, I can't get this sin in my mind. If you looked in, in verse number 3, what does he say? He says, for I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is ever before me. He's saying, God, I keep like a tape replaying it over and over and over in my mind. And I can't stop it. And God, I need you to forgive me because I know how horrible it was. And I can't get it out of my mind. He says, I need you to forgive me. And by the way, as long as we're breathing it out, we may not ever get true forgetfulness. But can I tell you something about your sin? When you get forgiveness of your sin and get right with God, that memory may come back. But guess what? You don't have to be a prisoner to it. Some of us in this room are prisoners to our past sins and failures. That's not the way God intended. He wants us to be honest about it, though. He says, my sin grieves me. Does your sin grieve you? Does your lying grieve you? Is you using the wrong kind of language, being prideful, whatever you want to do, throw in there. Does it grieve you? Or do you just as long as you're like, well, God, forgive me for the wrong I did today. Let's go on. He said it grieves him. And he not only realized that it grieves him, but in verse number 4, he sees that his sin is against only God. Look in verse number 4. He says, against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. You say, Phil, what, what do you mean that? Because Nathan had said David despised God and he scorned his word 
That's what he says in this passage here. He says, against thee and thee only have I sinned. By the way, this doesn't mean that uh, Bathsheba wasn't hurt. It doesn't mean that Uriah wasn't hurt. It doesn't mean that the baby still didn't die. But what it means is that it makes sin to be sin. It's, it means it's against God. That's what I have to understand. Your sin, my sin, is not just against hurting people, but my sin and your sin is against an almighty, all-powerful, holy, thrice God. And when I look at my life and when I sin and when I'm prideful, when I say the things I shouldn't and I don't obey God in the way that I should obey God, I need to understand something. I'm not sinning against the church. I'm not sinning against my family. He says, I'm sinning against God. If every time I sin, before I did, I had in my mindset, I am sinning and displeasing the one that loved me, that one was beaten for me, the one that was nailed to a cross for me, can I tell you, I probably sent a little bit less if I lived in the light of Calvary. And when I realize a lot of times we don't think it's a big deal because we think about who we're sinning against. And that's why our personal sins really don't seem like a big deal because what do we say? It ain't hurting nobody. Just me. But he says, God is against you. He says, it's against you and you only have I sinned. Can I tell you, hurting people are bad. It's bad. It's horrible. But that's not the terror of sin. The sin is an attack on God. It's belittling God. And David admits that. That when I sin, I belittle God. But I like how he goes on to also vindicate God or justify God, not himself. If you see in the next part of the verse, he says, That thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. You say, what do you mean? I see in this passage no defense, no escape, no justification. What David is saying here, God, I am one of your children, but God, do to me what keeps you just. That means this. Understand this. David is saying, I am your child, but if that means that I am lost, if that means in my life that I am to be punished, if that means I am to be cast into hell, if it means that, let your name still be holy, let your name still be just. Boy, that's, I can't tell you the last time I got right with God like that. God, forgive me for this, and God, do to me whatever needs to be done to me, as long as it keeps your name holy, as long as you can still be just. That's why he's a man after God's own heart. Man after God's own heart ain't just the boy slinging a stone. Man after God's own heart is the man that falls flat on his face in a horrible, sinful way, but still has enough integrity by the grace and the mercy of God to stand up and say, God, if you have to judge me to keep your name holy, bring on whatever judgment needs to happen in my life. If you're like me, I pray, God, spare me. God, spare me. God, spare me. God, spare me. Forgive me and spare me because I'm worried about self, justifying self, And we see how David even intensifies his guilt in verse 5. And I'll run through this quickly. He says, Behold, I was shaping iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Some people like to read this portion of Scripture and say, Well, see, that's because of David's raising. Because how David was raised, that's kind of the reason that David was. That's not what he's saying. He's telling God, he says, God, I admit that I was born with a nature that desires to sin. Can I tell you something? You might have been saved in here for 50 years, 4 years, 4 minutes. As long as you're breathing out, you still have a nature that desires to sin. You do. I do. Until we die, we're going to have a nature in us that desires to sin. And we see how he's not blaming Adam and Eve. He's not blaming his parents for that. And he's basically saying this. He says, God, if you don't rescue me from this sin, I'm going to keep doing it. I'm going to do worse. 
And we see that David admits that his sin is not just against the law, but it's against the mercy of God. If you look in verse 6, he says, Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. And what he's saying, he says, God, you've been my teacher. God, you've made me wise. And David had done so many wise things, but sin had got the upper hand in his life. And for David, that, that, this made it all the worse. He says, I have been blessed. You have blessed me with knowledge. You've blessed me with things. You've blessed me with all these different things. And he said, and because of that and because of my sin, I don't want it to make any of the wisdom, any of the blessings, any of the way you've used me in the past, I don't want to make that go away. He says, I want you to know God. I still want your wisdom. I want you to help me. I want you to correct me. When's the last time you want somebody to correct you? Nobody. Do you like it when that one person comes up to you and says, well, I got one thing to tell you. You see him coming, you're like, Lord, bless thee and keep thee. You just don't finish the statement. Far from me. But the last point I have this morning is this. Is David pleads for renewal. Renewal. So he's already turned to God, right? He's already said, don't just wash me, but wash me throughly, completely. Not only that, do we see that he he's understands the seriousness of his sin, but we see that he pleads for renewal. And what we understand is that, is that after he has forgiveness and after he has cleansing, and we see the confessing the great depth of his sin, David says, I need more than forgiveness. I need to be renewed. I know people don't do it a whole lot anymore. There was a time where people, you remember when we go to church, people come forward Say, I want to rededicate my life to God. You, you all remember that? People used to do that. Can I tell you something? You don't have to wait for an invitation into church to rededicate your life with God. You can rededicate your life with God right now. In your seat. Tomorrow on your job. Sitting in your home. When, if there's something in your life that's not right, you can say, God, renew me right now. Forgive me and renew me. There's nothing wrong with rededicating your life. And doing it in a public manner, I'm thinking about that. But can I tell you something? God desires to see us in our private life more than he desires to see in our public life. Because can I tell you, if the public life doesn't match the private life, we're no better than the Pharisees and Sadducees. Spurgeon says, I don't want to see your tears on the altar. I want to see your changed life in the street. That's why a lot of people get really emotional in church. But they leave and they don't change. Why? Well, the motions do this. They come and they go. But he says, I plead for renewal. And he is passionately committing to being changed by God. Don't let that phrase go through quickly through your mind. He wants to be changed, but he wants God to be the one to change you. Do you want God to change you? Well, I want to be a better Christian. I want to be a better person. That's my problem. And that's your problem. I need God to make me into who he wants me to be. That means I've got to take my hands off. I've got to let him drive. I've got to let him be in charge. Can I tell you, forgiven people are committed to being changed by God. And he prays in this passage of Scripture here as we read, he prays that God would confirm to him his salvation. It says in verse 11, he says, Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. I know some that say in this passage of Scripture that those that are saved should not pray this prayer of, of, of don't cast me away from thy presence and remove the Holy Spirit from me. It's not implementing the idea of losing your salvation. What David is saying is this. He says, don't cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. He's saying, God, don't treat me like somebody that's lost. Don't deal with me as you would deal with a lost 
unregenerate person. He said, God, deal with me still as the saved child of God. Even though I've sinned, even though I've been away, God, don't deal with me in my own sin. We won't take time to go there. But in Psalm 103, verse 10, it, the psalm that says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that's within me, bless his holy name. And when it says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his many benefits, in Psalm 103, verse 10, he says, And thanking you, Lord, that you did not deal with me in my sin. Can I tell you this morning, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you ought to thank God that you can get right with God and he still treats you as a child of God, not a lost person away from him because he can't hear their prayer. First prayer of a lost person he ever hears is the prayer of salvation. He says, God, just don't deal with me that way. Lord, please keep me close. And there's other passages of Scripture that can talk about that part of confirming it. But he not only that, but he prays for a heart and a spirit that's right and that's faithful. Love verse 10. I told you, verse 10 and verse 7 are my two favorite ones. Verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. But can I tell you something? Create in me is not David. Create in himself. It is God. You do it. Verse 7. Purge me with hyssop is God. Purge me with hyssop. Verse 10 is God create in me a clean heart. He says, God, I want to have a right kind of heart. I want to have an unwavering kind of heart. And I want to have a faithful heart and spirit. I want to have the right kind of heart. I want it to be within me. He goes on to pray about his salvation, saying that I want to have joy still in the salvation that you've provided. Verse number 8 says, Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Verse 12 says, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Can I tell you today, there's a lot of Christians that are saved. They have the gift of salvation, but they don't have the things that God has provided in salvation. Can I tell you today, if you're saved, you have provided for you, restoring to me the joy of thy salvation, are the things that we receive in Christ. When you got saved, you got eternal life. When you got saved, you got peace with God and are capable to have peace of God. When you got saved, you got a clean record in your life, the Christ clean record. When you got saved, you got the key to every hard thing that you'll face ever in your life. When you got saved, he took that chain of sin that binds you and he broke it. And when you got saved, you have the joy of the Lord is your strength. And what's also wonderful, when you got saved, you got God's will and plan for your life. But there's so many Christians probably sitting in this room that are experiencing none of those. And David says, for 12 months to 18 months, I haven't experienced the joy of any of those things that come in Christ. That's when he says, restore. May I taste and see that the Lord is good. May I taste and see that being free from the bondage of sin is awesome. May I taste and see that God has a plan and a will and a purpose in my life. Even though I've messed up more times than I can count, and surely there's no way he can use me, that he still has a plan. Oh, I want to taste and see that when God looks at me, he doesn't see my vile, my evil, my sin, but he sees the Christ clean record in my life. I want to be able to taste and see these heartaches and hardships I'm facing in my life, that God is the key, he is the peace to answering all of these things in my life. Are you tasting and saying that the Lord is good? Do you have joy of the Lord today? He said, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. He didn't say restore my salvation. Restore me the joy of it. See, when I'm not living right for God, peace with God doesn't sound very good. When I'm not right with God, the chain of sin being broken in my life, I don't care for. Whenever I'm not living right for God, God's plan for my life, I don't care. 
When I get right with God, I say, restore to me the joy of salvation. I get all of those. And when I'm not living right for God, I almost don't care a whole lot about heaven because I'm living like this earth is the only thing that matters. Restore, restore, restore. And I close with this, and I appreciate your attention this morning. After he prays all these things about being forgiven and being renewed, I love verse 13 because you know what he's asking verse 13? Use me. Look what it says, the very first word of verse 13. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. He says, after you have mercy on me, after you purge me, after you wash me, after you bring back the joy, after you create in me a clean heart, after you've done all these things in my life, after you've been just, God, please use me. Then will I teach. Can I tell you, repentance must come before worship and repentance must come before service if we want it to be acceptable. It has to come. It has to come. And what happens when we get to that point in our life of truly wanting to be right with God and we want God to use us, we get to enjoy verse number 15. Oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. You know why David in verse number 15 can say, God, open my mouth, let me praise you because of everything that Christ had just done in his life, everything that God had just forgiven him of. And he's saying, everything that's happened in my life, I, won't, I don't want my life to have a dull heart. I don't want my mouth to be shut. I want my mouth to constantly speak the joy of God. And can I tell you this? The easiest way to tell if someone's right with God, let's just be honest, there's no praise of God on their lips. You talk about what you love. You go on and on about what's important to you. So do I. So if there's no praise of God ever on your lips, you're kind of outwardly telling everybody, I'm not really right with him. You say, Phil, I'm just not as outspoken. Phil, I'm just not as outgoing. I understand that. I know a lot of people, there's some people like me that won't shut up. I got it. And there's some people that wouldn't talk to a chair. There's some that would talk to a chair. I got that too. But there's something wrong in the life of a believer. If you can say that you're really right with God, but there is no praise of him coming out of your mouth, you might want to make sure you got created me a clean heart, oh God. And renew a right spirit within me. Can I tell you something just to be honest with you? This prayer, I don't know if I've ever really, or many times I may say like this, done this. But this is not the prayer of salvation. This is the prayer of forgiveness and renewal for a child of God. And you know what? By the way, being a person after God's own heart shouldn't be the goal. Being right with God should. Let's stand together if you would. Father,